0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, reopenings and resurgence. Dr. Scott Gottlieb says once we reopen, we can't shut back down. So what happens if a second wave of COVID follows relaxing pandemic protocol?
2: I think come this fall, you're likely to see situations where Americans can't travel abroad, where other countries that managed to crush their virus... Um, aren't going to allow Americans to travel to those countries because we're going to have higher infection rates.
0: And assessing the damage to brick-and-mortar businesses with Yelp's VP of Data Science, Justin Norman.
2: As of
1: June 10th, we've seen more than 143,000 total business closures. And what we're seeing within that data is that over 35% of these are marked as permanent closures by businesses.
0: Plus, grounded airlines and their new ways to stay aloft. It's Monday, June 15th, 2020. SquawkPod Pod begins right now.
3: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's take a look at this. First up on today's podcast, a
0: surge in coronavirus cases. Many U.S. states are opening back up for business, and unfortunately, some have the COVID numbers to prove it. Reported record numbers of new cases over the past three days in Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Oklahoma. Alabama reported a record number of new cases for its fourth day in a row, and hospitalizations hit new records in Arkansas, Utah, Texas, and North Carolina over the weekend. Outside the US, Beijing has also seen a new surge of coronavirus cases, prompting a quote, wartime emergency mode in the Southwestern district of that city. As the world attempts to move past the pandemic, it seems our real beacon of hope is a vaccine, which among many companies, drug maker Moderna has been working on. The company expects final stage testing to begin in July. Here's Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bonsell on Squawk Box about a month ago.
4: We could go up to a billion uh, doses per year. No manufacturers can make enough doses for the entire planet. But if several vaccines have a chance to get to approval, we have a chance to uh, significantly impact the reduction of infection in disease and go back to a normal life.
0: This morning, Israeli news site Ynet reported that Israel is in advanced talks to buy that coronavirus vaccine from Moderna. But when CNBC reached out to the company, Bonsell responded that they are having discussions with multiple governments around the world and could not comment on this Ynet report. A development like this also raises concerns about equitable distribution of those one billion vaccines. Here's Joe Kernan kicking it off with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the go-to medical expert for CNBC these days, and with his weekly op-ed in. The wall street journal for many more in the business community
5: if we could get a million doses that worked right away that that'd be a good problem to have wouldn't it then we'll figure out where the most pressing needs are globally mike right, doctor
2: yeah look it's going to take time to ramp up that supply you're not just going to have a billion doses um overnight they're doing some advanced manufacturing of these vaccines right now so they're going to be manufacturing at risk so if any of these vaccines are successful they should have a lot of doses available. Moderna, in particular, is using a contract manufacturer, Lonza, here. So they're not controlling the manufacturing process. But, uh, you know, hopefully as they make the transition from the research stage manufacturing to commercial stage manufacturing, they can do it seamlessly and have the supply on hand. Just as an aside, one of the things that happened in 2009 with the H1N1 vaccine when we went to manufacture it, we actually um, ran into a hiccup. It took much longer to manufacture the doses as we converted to commercial stage manufacturing. It delayed us about two months.
5: Your latest op-ed, uh, just trying to summarize, if I had to just in a, in a couple of sentences summarize your point, I guess it's that, you know, the public really, before the government gave a lot of guidelines, the public had, had pulled in and had, had basically stayed home and wasn't going out. And... and a lot of states aren't ready to open up right now in terms of federal guidelines or guidelines, but they are anyway, and that's partly from from the public as well. It's not a second wave that we're seeing, in your view, but we still need to be ready for outbreaks and, and just, you know, I guess you're just saying be flexible in how we try to do this because it's not going to be perfect it's, and it's going to be very uneven.
2: Well, look, the, the point is... Uh, y- There's a perception that the government shut down the country and then the government reopened the country. And what happened was people shut down the country and then people reopened the country. And, um, you know, the government sort of came in with rules that formalized what people were doing. If we hadn't shut down when we did, we certainly would have when we reached 3,000 deaths a day. People were starting to close down businesses. And I said last week the NBA shut down the NBA and it shocked people when they did that. But a lot of businesses were following suit at the time and the government came in with rules that sort of formalized what was underway and we really reopened against the backdrop of more spread than what was prescribed in a lot of the reopening plans. But people were getting tired of the shutdowns and the government sort of formalized what was happening informally anyway. And so the point is that you need the support of the people really to make this work. We need to have the public invested in this. And that means things like, you know, encouraging mask wearing and, and everyday common sense procedures that if people engage in on a wide scale, it can cut, prop, cut transmission of this virus. If public officials sort of discourage these practices or don't engage in them, don't lead by example, and people don't engage in them on their own, then we're going to have more spread. We seem to be complacent to some degree with 20,000 cases a day. That's an awful lot of infection. That's why we're seeing these flare-ups and these outbreaks. This is going to become the new norm, these kinds of rolling outbreaks, if we continue to have this level of infection around the country.
5: Well, what can we do about it? And why should we not be more concerned about Arizona or about hospitals being... uh, tax to the limit at in some of these these areas where we're seeing the even hospitalization and ICU go up quite a bit. Shouldn't we be more concerned that we are? You you've always been kind of calm about it that this is something to be expected. Where should we be on a scale of one to ten on on how concerned we should be about this? Is it going to turn into New York and Texas? Well
2: Probably not, is the answer, but it has the potential to. So we need to be very concerned about it. Um, You know, they have more testing in place. You have a better sense of what the overall disease burden in in these communities are. Um, California right now has 3,700 cases at its peak. New York City had 5,000 cases, but we know at the peak of New York City, Those 5,000 cases were just a fraction of what was underway. Now they're probably turning over a good percentage of the cases in in Los Angeles and California where the outbreak is. So we have a better sense of what's going on. But this could quickly get out of control. And what these states need to do, these cities need to do, is do good contact tracing, not to find every individual who's infected, but find the sources of the infection, the activities that are leading to the infection, and take targeted mitigation steps. We're not going to be able to shut down the country again this summer. We're probably not going to be able to shut down the country again this fall. And so we're going to need to try to isolate the sources of these outbreaks and take targeted steps. If we can't do that, these will get out of control. And so the cities need to be adept at this. I think Arizona, you're going to see Arizona potentially take control away from the, the counties for the contact tracing work. You're going to see the state step in. These states need to be doing good contact tracing work to isolate the sources of these outbreaks.
6: Andrew doctor, we've been having a a little bit of a conversation over the past several weeks and even just moments before this uh, uh, before this past uh, commercial break about offering bonuses to employees to come back to work. And um, there's a lot of people who think that we need to get people back to work, obviously, and incentivize them to get people back to work. That was something that Larry Kudlow talked about over the weekend. Uh, On the other side, there are people who look at states like Arizona or frankly, even in New York, Uh, where some of the safety procedures at companies, uh, at warehouses, at restaurants, at other places of employment aren't necessarily practicing the proper uh, safety precautions. By the way, I was walking around New York City on on Friday, and even the New York City police aren't wearing masks. And so the question is, what is the right approach uh, to this and and whether incentives, as I said, there was an an article actually called these incentives uh, kamikaze bonuses, and so how, how do you instill that confidence in, in, in the public and, and uh, in the in, in the employment base?
2: Well, look, we need to get people back to work differently. And employers have a big role to play here in trying to prevent spread, not just at work, but also providing for testing um, at work. I think a lot of parts of the country that were never really heavily affected by this are a little bit more complacent. And we're seeing the consequences of that there are a lot of parts of the country. If you look at Texas. Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, the places where you 're seeing surges now in infection, um, not not epidemics and maybe not true outbreaks, but certainly rising infection, surges in infection. these are surges off of a pretty steady baseline it 's not like they went down and then came back up. They never really got rid of the infection, maybe they came down a little bit, um, and now they 're coming back up, but they never really crushed their infection like the tri state uh, region did and so those regions of the country, people were never quite as affected by coronavirus, and to them it was something on the news. And so I think you're seeing less pervasive um, behavior in those parts of the country around measures of precaution that right ne- here in a tri-state area we take for granted. When I go out in Connecticut and I see a lot of people wearing masks, in fact, most people are wearing masks, I bet you wouldn't see that in South Carolina, North Carolina, Arizona, Texas where people just weren't as impacted by this. And so we need to make these, these procedures, these practices more uniform. Business could, businesses can play a really strong role in doing that.
3: Hey, Scott, can we go back to the Moderna news, uh, the idea that lots of countries are, are trying to negotiate with Moderna, and I'm sure all of the different uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies that are trying to develop these vaccines. There is going to be a limited dose uh, amount available in the beginning, at least relative to the population of the world. How, how do how do we determine how this stuff gets doled out? Uh, you have some companies that are U.S.-based companies that have received government funding for developing these. Vaccines. How would they put the United States uh, kind of in, in stacking order with other countries, and and then is it only going to be the developed countries that actually get to buy any of these vaccines at first?
2: Well, I'm quite certain the U.S. has already locked up a certain amount of supply, initial supply from all of these manufacturers, and we might not be privy to the details of those contracts and the negotiations that have been underway. But the U.S. government gave a lot of grant money to these companies for for advanced manufacturing. That isn't manufacturing that the companies are just going to hold on to. That's manufacturing that the U.S. has already bought. That's money that the U.S. government has spent to already buy the, the initial runs of these vaccines and, and effectively stockpile them. And so whatever's left over after that initial, those initial orders are filled, I'm sure is going to be allocated on some basis around the world to other countries and perhaps just through private contracts that these companies strike on their own. The companies are going to need to be mindful of making sure that they distribute this as equitably as possible. Make no mistake. Um, Nations that have these vaccines being produced within their nations are going to make sure that they have supply sufficient to take care of their initial needs before this is going to get shipped around. And that's exactly what's happened in the past. Um, Call it what you will. But with H1N1 in 2009, the exact same thing happened where countries held on to enough vaccine supply to fulfill their initial needs before they allowed it to be shipped outside their borders. How
3: much of this stuff is being manufactured in the United States? I know in the case of of Moderna, a lot of that's being manufactured in, in Europe, maybe some in North America, too. But I don't know how much is in the U.S. itself.
2: All of these companies have provided for U.S.-based manufacturing on the expectation they won't be able to ship this back into the U.S. from other countries. So there's quite a bit that's being allocated and manufactured right here in the United States. That's the difficulty is, is freeing up the manufacturing capacity here in the U.S. But they're doing that. Okay.
5: Good. Well, uh, and Derek, uh, we're going to ask going to ask you about China. Things happening there. Are they past it, Scott? Uh, just in a word, they past this or, or they got or they have to worry as well in Beijing. Well, look, they certainly.
2: They- they certainly crushed their virus. I think come this fall, you're likely to see situations where U.S. Tra- US people, you, Americans, can't travel abroad, where other countries that managed to crush their virus um, aren't going to okay. allow Americans to travel to those countries because we're going to have higher infection rates than
5: other nations. Okay. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, just who is reopening their doors? Yelp gives us exclusive numbers on the state of local businesses. Yelp data scientist, Justin Norman.
1: Retail makes about 23% of total businesses closed since March 1st. And restaurants are coming in at about 17%.
0: We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: This is Squawk Pod. here's Becky Quick. Yelp's data science team has been gathering information on business closures since the start of the pandemic using the over 200 million reviews and photos. Their new data, which is exclusive to Squawk Box, is helping to reveal more fully the economic impact of this crisis. For instance, since March 1st, retail represents 23% of all the business closures on Yelp. Of those, 27% are indicated as permanent closures. Restaurants are also getting hit hard, as 48 percent indicated they could not come back from this crisis. Joining us right now for more on this data is Justin Norman. He is Yelp's vice president of data science. And Justin, we're excited to have you here today because we are having such a hard time trying to use the normal economic data that we follow on a weekly or monthly basis to try and figure out what's happening in these very unusual times. Um, So what you're doing really offers some real-time insight into what's on the ground. First of all, tell us about how many businesses have actually closed during this.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, So as of June 10th, uh, and as you mentioned, we've been capturing this since the beginning of March when the shelter-in-place orders really came into effect, we've seen more than 143,000 total business closures. Um, And what we're seeing within that data is that over 35% of these are marked as permanent closures by businesses, which means that they are not expecting to reopen uh, according to what they're reflecting on Yelp. And it's important to, to note that this is just a reflection of what Yelp is able to see um, as businesses mark that data on our platform. Uh, so there actually could be more um, or, or hopefully slightly less, but it is a reflection of what we're seeing.
3: In terms of the breakdown, what uh, retail and restaurant we know are a big part of them. What, what percentage do they each make up?
1: Uh, sure, absolutely. So as you uh, said before, retail makes about 23 percent of total businesses closed since March 1st. Uh, and restaurants are coming in at about 17%. Um, It is really uh, a telling that restaurants in particular are 48% of of closures uh, are marked as permanent. So even though restaurants have a higher degree of closures overall, we're seeing that some restaurants might have had very little um, reserve cash as we went into the pandemic and had to close immediately. And then later uh, in May, or most recently, we're seeing a second wave of closures really come in for restaurants. Uh, and that's when some restaurants who have been able to find a way to survive for a period of time ran out of that cash reserve or realized that the secondary mechanisms of, of making money just weren't enough uh, and are transitioning now into a closed state.
3: We, we also saw on the screen that the idea that beauty, uh, beauty salons and others had been closed for a long time, too. What other businesses have been affected?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So beauty uh, actually makes up uh, about 13% of the total businesses closed, and is a, a smaller overall percentage of, of businesses that are tracked on Yelp. Um, but we are seeing something interesting in, in beauty, in that uh, there aren't as many uh, permanent closures, and aren't as many uh, total closures. So 18% of, of the 13% are marked as permanent. And what that indicates is that there are likely other mechanisms of of business uh, beauty businesses. Uh, to deliver their services to their consumers. So we saw that YouTube is being utilized to to give hair tutorials. A lot of makeup providers are being able to actually send out packages uh, via delivery to their consumers. So they're they're making a a good run to be able to still deliver their services uh, and keep the the revenue up. Another area is fitness. Uh, So online fitness has become uh, all the rage during the pandemic. Many people are taking part in uh, video on-demand lessons. I know myself, I'm, I'm a part of that community. Um, And as a result, these gyms and fitness institutions are able to continue to uh, get that recurring revenue over time. Um, And you're seeing uh, really only 5% of businesses that are closed uh, since March 1st are in the fitness industry. Although there are a a lower number of of, of fitness um, uh, businesses overall uh, on Yelp.
3: Hey, Justin, do you break this down geographically, the places that are, are maybe opening up and starting to see a little success?
1: Sure. So we do have that information, although we did not see any strong trends geographically. And remember, the data is actually calculated up until the 10th of June. So a lot of the shelter in place orders have just now started to release, especially for businesses that require people to spend time inside, like diner seated in restaurants or fitness organizations. So we haven't seen a lot of changes in that geographically, but we'll definitely keep an eye on it.
3: We'd love to have you back and and, uh, share some of that information with us. We really appreciate your time today, Justin.
1: Absolutely. Nice to be here. Thank you.
3: SquawkPod will be right back with airlines flying the
0: non-profitable
7: skies. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin.
6: With demand for air travel slowly starting to pick up, some of the planes that have been sitting parked for months are getting back in the air, but likely take a while for those flights to become profitable again. Phil LeBeau, who joins us now with more on that. Phil.
4: Yeah, Andrew, profitability is a long ways off. These guys are still burning through tens of millions of dollars every day. You need these planes to be at least 75% full before you can say, okay, we're break even on a particular flight and they're not at that level yet. So but when you look at the airlines, you need to keep in mind that they are bringing back these planes. Now a couple of factors here, some of the airlines have said we're going to block that middle seat and as a result, we're capping passenger levels at 65 or 66% for a particular flight. So as a result, when you look at the airlines that have brought back flights or brought back planes in the month of June only, you've got American at 64, Delta at 16, Frontier bringing back 20 and a lot more on the way in the month of July. All of this is because you've got more airplane seats that are, are are out there. People, as they are starting to fly, the airlines are making more available. Now, it's up 39 percent, according to OAG, since mid-May. But when you look at the level since January, still down 66 percent. So the airlines are nowhere close to getting back to actually making money off of all the seats possible. Uh, That's where they would like to be the January levels. Speaking of passenger levels, the TSA out with the data from over the weekend. Well, these passenger levels, they're still down 81 percent. But three of the past four days, we topped 500,000 passengers in the U.S., with yesterday being the best day at 544,000. Southwest, as it has added back flights, pretty judiciously, we should point out, It is now because of all the fall off in China, it now has more seats available than any other airline in the world. And that's not a surprise given what we've seen over in China in Southeast Asia. Guys, back to you.
3: Hey, Phil, there's just some news crossing on United. I don't know if you've had time to look at this yet to see what's going on. What's happening?
4: Well, you've got a couple of 8Ks that United is dropping, and this is big news in terms of what the airline is going to be doing. The airline has essentially lined up a loan for five billion dollars the collateral for that loan basically it's going to be backed by the mileage plus program that's the frequent flyer the loyalty program this will help them along with the treasury loan that they're going to be applying for have about seventeen billion dollars in liquidity by the end of the third quarter that four point five that's five billion dollars and then another four point five billion they expect to get through treasury that will be backed by slots, gates, routes, not by aircraft. So between those two, United expects to have about $17 billion in liquidity by the end of the third quarter, with a cash burn rate coming from $40 million a day in the second quarter to $30 million a day in the third quarter. But they are doing this, guys, basically lining up the possibility that they're going to need even more liquidity, especially if there's a second wave of COVID-19 and we see a further contraction in terms of flying, both here in the U.S. and around the world.
3: Phil, explain how the loyalty program is worth $5 billion, because that's really just the information on the passengers, right? If those passengers aren't no. traveling, aren't spending like they used to, what, what, what is the value there?
4: No, when you're looking at the, uh, at the Mileage Plus program, uh, $5.3 mm-hmm. billion dollars in sales last year, Becky, $1.8 billion in EBITDA. So they are monetizing that program. By essentially saying, okay, this is going to be backing a loan facility for five billion dollars. By the way, they expect that they will keep this open that was last year. And from time to time tap. it. What's,
3: what's the well, revenue it, What I is it for this year?
4: They, they did not <laughs> give that. They just gave us a briefing on that,. Um, Becky, if you look at <laughs> Becky, if you look at airline bankruptcies, and we've said this going all the way back to 2000, if you look at all of them, what is the Holy Grail? When it comes to bankruptcy, that is protected first and foremost before anything else. Loyalty programs, because they're the most valuable asset in many ways that the airlines have. And what United is doing here, and we'll see this likely with other airlines as well, is to say, okay, you know what? We will collateralize this. This will be the mortgage behind this $5 billion loan. You've got 100 million subscribers, and you're bringing in more than $5 billion a year in sales. Uh, I think that they believe that this is a smart move, and I think most people will look at it that way, and you'll see other airlines doing something similar in the future.
3: I, look, I think it's a smart move for the airlines. My question is, that, you know, it was worth $5 billion last year. What's it worth this year? Show me the numbers this well, year Becky, and tell me I, I, when no, you look, think it's going to get back to those numbers. You think it's going to be back like that next year? Maybe. But uh, Well, let me ask you lot. this,
4: Becky. If, if you are a Mileage Plus member, are you canceling that credit card or that program? are you still spending through that credit card are you still spending through that program but in terms of and, and that's of, where the question
3: of, comes in you, that's where the question comes in is how much is it down this year and how quickly will that return and i, I mean that's the big question on everything happening with the airlines how quickly sure. are people going to be flying again that's that's unknown right. right that's look you know, and,
4: and nobody's then, expecting profitability by the end of the year um, but th- what they are yeah, doing here I, by lining up the 17 billion in liquidity is making I, sure I that they are on their in part. position. I think
3: it's smart on their part. I just I would question whether the underlying value of the program is still that. Uh, I, I drove by Newark Airport for the first time on, on Friday, Phil. And I was shocked because even though I don't really see planes in the air all that much and every time I do, it's enough for me to stop and take a look at them. Um, I, I had not driven by any of the airports yet. That was the first one I drove by. There wasn't a plane that was landing. There wasn't a plane that was taking off. I didn't see too many planes. At any of the of the gates. And it, it was just kind of this awesome reminder of this airport that when I used to drive by it all the time, would be completely jammed with the planes lining up to come in. Even sure. as you see people start to come back and 500,000 people traveling again, that, that still is such a small oh, fraction they're a way of what off. we've been seeing before.
4: Becky, they're yeah. a long ways off from where, where they were uh, pre-COVID-19. There's no doubt about that. And let's be clear here. The big problem It's the corporate traveler. The corporate traveler is just not coming back anytime soon. So as encouraging as it is that more people want to go, and that's the most profitable. More people may want to go to Florida. It doesn't really matter until you and I are on a trip, let's say to Dallas or to somewhere
0: else.
3: Phil, thank you. It's great to see you.
5: You bet.
0: That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
7: We'll meet you back here tomorrow.